Welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today is a special day for me because we get to talk about things like African-American female mortality. We get to talk about things like uh, black male health. We get to talk about things like black men, women, and COVID-19. We get to talk about the vaccine. I have some amazing guests today, and thank you so much for joining another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. I look forward to interviewing Howard University President Dr. Wayne Frederick and Charles Drew University President David Carlisle. But before I do, I wanted to talk about something that has been bubbling up under the surfaces that some people are not paying attention to, but it's about black folk and COVID-19, specifically the COVID vaccine. So let's try first to level set. I think soon to be Vice President Harris summed it up when talking about how many of us feel about President Trump's commentary on the vaccine. I will say that I would not trust Donald Trump, and it would have to be a credible source of information that talks about the, um, the efficacy and the, and the reliability of whatever he's talking about. I will not take his word for it. He wants us to inject bleach. I, no, I will not take his word. I don't think we need to say much more about President Trump's views on a vaccine. All that said, my view of a vaccine is that Donald Trump's opinion on the vaccine really doesn't matter. He doesn't matter because the global effort to develop a safe and effective COVID vaccine is a global effort that extends far beyond President Trump. And while this may come as a shock to many, the actual development of a vaccine is still driven by science not politics that Donald Trump can actually control. Now, I want to distinguish between the vaccine's development from the FDA's approval of a vaccine. The vaccine itself is being developed by scientists and pharmaceutical companies around the world with oversight in the U.S. by career scientists at the National Institute of Health and the Department of Health and Human Services, people we can trust. The FDA approval process is where the president is seeking to exert his influence, and that's where we'll simply block him out. Because just like injecting bleach and Z-packs, the medical community pushed back on the president, and they'll be watching the FDA approval like a hawk. If our medical community doesn't broadly approve the vaccine and use it themselves, then Americans won't take the vaccine either, no matter what the president says. To use his term, it is what it is. Now, I want to talk specifically to my people, to black folk, about the vaccine. We need a vaccine almost more than any other community in the country. We're about 13% of the country's population, but over 25% of all COVID deaths. I'm not saying COVID infections. I'm saying deaths. We disproportionately work in essential industries. We over-index in the comorbidities that make COVID particularly deadly. So a safe and effective vaccine will disproportionately benefit us. But in order to gauge the effectiveness, black folks need to be a part of the clinical trials. We need to be a part of the clinical trials for the vaccine. So this is where conspiracy theories come in. Donald Trump has absolutely nothing to do with the clinical trials, period. They're led by scientists, including scientists in places like Meharry and Howard and Drew and Morehouse. 
We scheduled this episode because of the prominent role that black medical schools are playing in the COVID vaccine's development and public awareness around it. Because black people need to hear from black doctors. There's no hidden agenda around trials or vaccinations. We absolutely must have black people participate in the COVID vaccine trials, as this is the only way we'll know that it's safe for black patients. This is not the Tuskegee Experiment 2.0. It's science and the institutions that we trust are leading the way. We should follow their lead. So ignore Trump, trust science, enroll in the trials, encourage black folks to take medical advice from medical professionals and not Facebook. I'm looking at you, mama. Call out the bullshit when you see it in your social media networks around the COVID trials and trust the leadership of our black medical professionals. We do that, and we'll be fine. Now on to another great episode of the Bakari Sellers podcast with, I can honestly call them my friends now, Dr. Frederick and Dr. Carlisle. Welcome to the Bakari Sellers podcast. Today I have two amazing guests with me. One is Dr. David Carlisle, the other Dr. Wayne Frederick, both from historically black colleges and universities, amazing leaders of those institutions who just were a part of a $100 million announcement from Michael Bloomberg. So shout out to Bloomberg. Thank you so much for that. For our listeners who have never heard of Drew or Howard, talk to me about your institutions and what they mean for the provision of healthcare to black people, generally speaking, and specifically in the communities where you're located in Los Angeles and in D.C. Dr. Carlisle, I know you're, you're uh, braving forest fires and everything else, so I will let you go uh, first out there in L.A. Uh, yes, indeed. And yes, the wildfires are burning uncontrollably right now um, in the eastern part of Los Angeles County and the foothills. But back to, um, to, to Charles R. Drew University of Medicine and Science. Uh, we are in our 54th year as a community-founded institution started immediately after the Watts Rebellion of 1965. Um, as a community-founded institution, our mission is to train young people, especially those from South Los Angeles and communities like it, so that they can become health professionals of the future to serve um, people throughout L.A. County, especially under resource communities. And we've been doing that, as I said, for 54 years very successfully. Dr. Frederick. Howard University just lost a beloved alum. He's also a great South Carolinian and Chadwick Bozeman. But I can promise you that we were talking about which HBCU, and as a Morehouse man, I can tell you that it it pained me to say this, but which HBCU has just been really winning the the last few years. It definitely goes to to Howard University, not just with McCour Maker, five-star athlete coming to grace your campus, but also Kamala Harris and others. Just tell people what Howard University, the brand means and the institution does for black folk in general and, and specifically in Washington, D.C. Yeah, you know, Howard University, I think, uh, means a lot for 153 years. As I've been saying recently, we've been on the road to social justice. Uh, that is our DNA. And as a result, I think our connection uh, to the broader African diaspora has been a critical one as we try to solve problems of the day that are manifesting themselves in this moment. And so as we look uh, today at the issues around healthcare disparities, as an example, uh, it's one that we've been trying to highlight for quite some time and trying to put at the forefront. And 
fortunately through this gift from Bloomberg, it's getting the right kinds of attention as we get culturally competent physicians. I know there's a lot of focus on just black physicians, but the reality is all of our students at Howard and black, but they definitely leave culturally competent as they practice medicine in today's world. You know, you, you brought up something. It's something we'll get into a, a little bit later when you talk about cultural competency. But I do want to give a shout out to the other two HBCU medical schools, Morehouse School of Medicine and Meharry. I'd be remiss if we didn't note them as well. But what role do HBCU medical schools play in improving health outcomes for black Americans? Yeah, um, they play a significant role. I'm a GI surgical oncologist. I operate on patients with actually diagnoses like Chadwick's. Um, this last Friday, I, I saw a patient that I first operated on back in 2000. So wait, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. You run an institution, you deal with an HBCU board of trustees. I, you don't have to tell me how difficult that is because my daddy was president of Voorhees. I know how difficult our board, and I sat on the board of Morehouse. I know we can be a pain in the ass. You don't have to go that far. But, mm-hmm. and you still, you still regularly practice medicine. I still practice medicine. I still operate, operated as recently as last Friday. And I, I do that because I was the fifth black to train at MD Anderson in surgical oncology. And I think I have a moral obligation to pass that craft on uh, for as long as I could and obviously balance my, my other duties appropriately. But it also could, it's also my teaching laboratory. If I said I was going to teach freshman English, I think people would say, oh, that's great that the president is teaching freshman English. Uh, I just wouldn't be as good at teaching freshman English. <laughs> I, I see those patients um, on a regular basis. You know, and I, I saw a, a gentleman I operated on initially with a stage four colon cancer you know, back in 2008. And here we are 12 years later. He's doing well. I've had, he's had multiple operations, you know, multiple bouts of chemotherapy, but it just brings home these issues and, and the struggle. So what we're trying to do consistently is to show that all of the social determinants of health are an issue and how can we close those gaps? How can we bring access and right here, even in the nation's capital, the maternal mortality rate is unbelievable during childbirth. And I think would be unacceptable if it really got the types of um, exposure that it should. And so we, we are continuing to write about that. We're continuing to put physicians out who are helping solve that problem. And we also are continuing to push to get more participation in clinical trials, just as this upcoming or, or these ongoing vaccine trials have not been doing. And, and that's how we have been contributing I think, to trying to close the gaps. Dr. Carlisle, while you answer that question as well, I also want to throw out there, what are the unique challenges that HBCU medical schools face in meeting the needs that their communities serve? Well, I think, as you just heard uh, President uh, Frederick say, uh, we've been positioned to meet the, the needs of our communities for, uh, for years and, and for decades. But those needs uh, continue, and in some cases, they are, they are growing. Um, our institutions... Uh, take often very, very socioeconomically um, challenged individuals and uh, turn them into uh, practicing and highly successful healthcare professionals. And uh, it, it really um, makes me feel wonderful when I ask a student at CDU, where are you from? Where did you grow up? And that student says something like, I'm from Watts, I'm from Compton, I'm from right around the corner. Because that tells me that we're doing exactly what we were created to do. Um, take students from the communities that we serve and convert them into practicing healthcare professionals by the midpoints in their careers. Our students, for example, were out there in the middle of the um, the COVID-19 pandemic um, hosting a uh, testing site uh, that became one of the most successful in Los Angeles County. Every day when I'd go by the site, it just made me feel proud to see CDU students out there on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic. These are some of the same students that Michael Bloomberg has invested in 
uh, in the future. And those individuals will now be even more empowered and more incentivized uh, to return to the communities that they came from, some of the most under-resourced communities in the country, to practice medicine in the future. So, I mean, how will the proceeds, I mean, people just want to know, we hear about these huge donations all the time, but what does that practically mean for a campus like yours? What, I mean, how is that donation spent and why is this such a game changer for your institutions? Well, for us, this means that our students will be graduating with much, much less um, uh, educational debt, medical school educational debt in the future. Uh, the more debt a medical student has, the more likely they are to go into a um, a, a highly compensated specialty, and less likely are they to go into a, a, a less well-compensated uh, primary care specialty. Uh, we need uh, physicians and, and surgeons of every type, to be sure, but we especially need um, physicians who will return to primary care situations, often considerably undercompensated in their communities to provide needed care, such as fighting against COVID-19. And this wonderful gift from Michael Bloomberg, the largest gift our university has ever received is going to play a major role in encouraging those students to do exactly that. Can we, let's have a a medical conversation. If you can indulge me real quick, I I just, you know, most people, some, some may not be familiar with operation warp speed. Operation warp speed is the way in which we're moving forward and getting a vaccine on the streets, going through the proper testing, uh, supposedly proper testing at FDA uh, and everywhere else. But what role do HBCU medical schools play in the fight against COVID? But also answer just fundamentally the question. I, I guess I'll start with you, Dr. Frederick. Why has COVID hit black communities so hard? Yeah, well, you know, first, let's start with your last question. First, uh, the healthcare disparities that exist are fundamentally have really set the black community up for being at more risk. So everything from the comorbidities, such as the incidence of diabetes, hypertension, obesity in the Black community means that if you contract the virus and, and get respiratory compromise from it, uh, all of those issues make you, uh, put you more at risk. And then when you look at access to care, the ability to get testing, et cetera, that puts you more at risk as well. And what Howard has done during the pandemic is try to get testing out to the community. So we actually stood up uh, free testing at three different sites through a grant that we uh, received in order to be able to do that. And that was critical because you also have to recognize that to take time out from an hourly wage job as a frontline worker to go get tested is in and of itself a sacrifice and one that we need to look at. And then as you uh, were mentioning on in terms of trying to get the vaccinations, get the vaccine trials done, et cetera, I'll tell you, there has been unprecedented cooperation uh, to get this vaccine to market. I know that there's a lot of politicization, uh, politicization of the situation and people are very concerned and suspicious um, about this. But in the medical community in particular, there has been true great collaboration that has been unprecedented. However, we still cannot skip some of the fundamental things that need to be done in order to get there. And I think HBCUs need to participate to bring that level of trust so okay. we can increase the percentages there and, and tomorrow we'll have an editorial out as a group, uh, an op-ed that will speak to that issue that we believe that if the federal government in, engages the HBCUs, you can really get significant participation by African-Americans. And I, I don't mean to, to drag you all into any controversy you don't need, but we see what's going on with my good friend, 
uh, the president of Dillard and Xavier, two New Orleans-based HBCUs, encouraging members of their university families to participate in COVID-19 vaccine trials. What role do you see, uh, Dr. Carlisle, the HBCU medical schools playing in, and don't you believe like I do that they're uniquely situated for this moment where they can not only build trust, where we can ensure that we have more people of color in trials, where we can actually utilize our input? Because I would think that I would want an institution like Charles Drew to be a part of a vaccine or be a part of a process that is killing black communities at much faster rates. Yes, and, and Bakari, I, I think you, you've certainly um, focused on, on the central issue that we're facing in, in COVID-19. But what you're talking about is, is what we call concordance in medicine. It makes a difference when a patient sees a healthcare provider who looks like them, a healthcare provider who may have come from the same community, a healthcare provider who speaks the same language. Uh, that was the, the secret of our, our testing site and why we had so many people from the community uh, willing to be tested for COVID-19 in the first place. When you apply that to, to vaccinations and, and vaccine development, it makes a huge difference to have the providers, the same providers, assuring members of our community uh, that vaccines, vaccination against COVID-19 and influenza is important and critical in this fight that we're facing right now against this global pandemic. Our voices are critically important in terms of reaching out to communities of color, African-American communities all around the country to assure them that we are engaged in the fight against COVID-19 and we have their backs in this fight. And that's a critical role that we, that we play. I mean, I, I understand the, the very, uh, the, the deep seated, deep rooted and many times valid mistrust that black folk have of this process. But can you talk about some of the things that we have to do to ensure my, my daughter's immunosuppressed? I'm going to be first in line as long as it goes through the proper protocols. I mean, if Voorhees College or South Carolina State or Claflin are like, look, we, we're setting up vaccine uh, distribution on our campus, I'll be there, right? Or the AME Church, I'll be there. But what are some of the things that we have to see and do to ensure uh, and what, what does the process look like that we have to ensure that this vaccine undergoes for it to be safe and for African-Americans to truly grasp and take hold of it? Because it's a vaccine that, if done properly, could help our community. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll give you a little preview to what we outline uh, tomorrow. One is you've got to involve, I think, the HBCU medical schools on the science side. I think if you have us validating the science and being able to translate that in conversation, and communication to the black community, I think you raise uh, that expectation. You have to have greater participation. Um, one of the things about the coronavirus, just from a scientific point of view, is that its access is through a certain receptor, the antihypertensin uh, 2 receptor. That receptor in the past has been used for antihypertensives that have had a mixed results in African-Americans. And therefore, as you think of a vaccine and you think of developing one, if that angiotensin receptor is a major part of that, um, of what they're doing with the vaccine, and there's a problem there, if you don't have enough African-Americans to validate that study, you, you can have a problem. The third is we have to be out in the community and demonstrate to the community that we are going to keep them protected. So it's one thing for them to go get a vaccine. It's another thing for people who look like them and physicians who are culturally competent and understand their circumstances to administer that vaccine to them. 
and to be willing to continue to provide uh, the appropriate care for them. And as you pointed out, uh, Bakari, and, and you know, I, I certainly um, admire your willingness to, to speak out about a very uh, important aspect of your life. I have sickle cell anemia and I'm a type 1 diabetic. Um, I need to be at the front of that line as well. But I want to be sure that that vaccine uh, hasn't been tested in enough diabetics. And I definitely know that it won't be tested in enough people with sickle cell just because of the number of us in, in the country, there are only 100,000 of us. But if absolutely none of us are signed up in that trial, it's going to cause me concern. And I can imagine for the layperson who has that mistrust, if someone like myself or someone who doesn't even understand sickle cell doesn't show up and speak to me about taking that vaccine, I would be hesitant. And how would having a sickle cell center, I think would be a good way, for instance, to get people at risk, such as people with sickle cell, uh, to take the vaccine as well. Same question to you, Dr. Carlisle, just about the vaccine. And, and I, I want both of y'all to answer this. Just what processes, as we look at Moderna or whoever, I don't care what jersey the team is wearing, what processes should we be looking at as me and my wife sit down and make these determinations, what would it take for you to, to be comfortable? I mean, I, you talked about sickle cell, Dr. Frederick, but just from a larger perspective, what would it take, uh, Dr. Carlo, you can go first, you two to say this is safe for my family? Not just your institution, right? I, I get that. Because y- y'all are going to be drug on Twitter, too, for going out there, right? As soon as y'all, as soon as y'all send this op-ed piece out, they're going to treat y'all like, uh, like Kellyanne Conway was sitting on the sofa again uh, and everybody was in the Oval Office, okay? I, y'all remember that episode. So we, we just know that's going to happen. But what is it going to take for you to say, this is something my family could take, Dr. Carla? What processes should we be looking at when we're reading these articles to see that this vaccine went through the proper phases? Well, I think for the African-American community, distrust in the healthcare system uh, may not have started with the Tuskegee experiment, but it was certainly underscored three, four, and five times by that experiment, which only ended in the early 1970s, mid-1970s. The problem is we need to have African-Americans, exactly as President Frederick is saying, engaged top to bottom in the vaccine development effort. Uh, We need to have African-American researchers. We need to have patients from the African-American community, such as those with sickle cell anemia, involved in vaccine development. This is a major part of our message uh, as we we, uh, unfold vaccine. Let me ask you you a question, and I don't mean to cut you off. Here I am pulling a Jake Tapper impersonation. But how do you you have distrust, and then we're at the point where we got to get more black folk in the trials? I mean, we got to cross a bridge somewhere because— you know, there is going to be that whole, uh, they injected us with this before. Like, I, for me, I think the education probably should have started back in November when we identified COVID-19 the first time in these communities. But here we are now. So wh- what is that? Is it education? What is it? Well, education is certainly an important part. And if you look at the four of us, uh, presidents of our historically Black uh, medical schools, we're also all uh, researchers. We all have research backgrounds. We're all academicians. Uh, so, so we have an understanding of the, the basic science, and we can convey uh, the positivity of the process uh, to the community and say um, that this is something that the community should support and be involved. At the same time, we can convey the message uh, to leaders of the National Institutes of Health, um, COVID-19 policy, that this is what you need to do to enable the trust of the African-American community 
so that the community that is dying more from COVID-19 and more likely to get it is also more likely to be involved in COVID-19 vaccination trials and actually the implementation of the vaccine itself. And, and I think, Bakari, this is tag on to that in terms of, you know, as you're making your evaluation and as lay people are making their evaluations, there is a process that we go through to test drugs and vaccines. And I think that's the first thing that you want to make sure that no steps have been skipped um, in order to do that and that uh, that's validated. The second thing is I think we're going to need spokespeople. So yes, we may be tarred and feathered uh, tomorrow night for uh, <laughs> suggesting that uh, agencies should be involved in vaccine trials, but I think that that's what leaders have to do. And I think we have to step out there. We have to find leaders in the community. You mentioned the AME Church. Uh, the, the Black Church is a major fabric of the Black community. Just as we did with testing, uh, we stood up a couple of testing sites at churches. We've got to go and get our pastors. Howard is involved in a project called the Black Coalition Against COVID. And we, we, we intend to use those partners uh, in that church community to stand up and, you know, to say to their members, uh, this is something that you need to participate in. And we have to be willing to form those types of coalitions in order to gain people's trust and to gain their participation. You know, I think we would all be served by an apolitical process here you know, a, a nonpartisan, apolitical process here, because I want to have a safe vaccination as early as possible, regardless of who the president is. I, I We need that in our system. Now, I, I know I don't have you guys for much longer, but I do have a couple of issues I wanted to, to touch on. Can you talk to me about how you define health equity and some of the I want you to identify some of the blind spots you see historically about how we talk about healthcare policy in this country, where healthcare or health equity isn't always as prominent a consideration as it should be. And if you were advising whomever it would be, and let's say Vice President Biden or or um, Vice President Pence or whomever it was called you and asked you for what would ultimately be a part of any health equity agenda, what would each of you tell them? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go first. I'll. Um... You know, one of the things that I think is very obvious to me is if you look at, I would start with the life expectancy. I don't think most of these folks who form policy recognize just how, the fact that that health disparity actually leads to a wide variation in mortality rates. So right here in DC with our eight wards, in ward seven and eight, that are 95% African-American, the life expectancy of a black male is about 66 years. If you go to ward three, that's 95% white, the life expectancy is almost 20 years more. Uh, and so right there, I would say to that person, in this little city right here of Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, uh, just based on where you live and the color of your skin, you have that wide gap. And so if you looked at the, the lowest part of our healthcare outcomes in terms of what Af the things that African-Americans die from and how much money we spend in that last couple of years of life, you could, the, the economy, and especially if you, I think if you make an economic argument, the economy could be so much different for the one-sixth that we spend mm -hmm. by spending more money on prevention. And so one of the policy things that I would advocate for is prevention. And there's several areas where you can impact that, screening for colon cancer being one. We are fully aware that more African-Americans are getting colon cancer at a younger age, yet still our national recommendations and insurers will pay for you to get screened at 45. And quite frankly, for African-Americans, that's too late. Genetic screening is less engaged in our community. And I think policy around getting uh, insurers to pay for that as well would be helpful. So I think there's several things on just looking at 
the data and trying to put more money into prevention programs than we spend on, on treatment on the back end, I think would be make a significant change. Dr. Carla? Yeah, so, so I, would, I would define equity as to each according to their, their need. The late uh, Professor Loretta Jones um, really taught me a, an important lesson. And she said, Dr. Carlisle, it's not underserved, it's under-resourced. Mm-hmm. Underserved communities are underserved because they're under-resourced. And this gets to the point of equity. The United States spends way more on healthcare than any other country by far. Yet we have horrendous health outcomes, life expectancy, infant mortality, maternal mortality. The difference is those resources that we're pouring into our healthcare system are not being delivered to the communities that need them most. And it's those communities, African-American communities, other communities of color, that are especially suffering from this maldistribution of healthcare resources. We need equity and distribution of healthcare resources, including the training of future physicians and other healthcare professionals. So last January 7th of 2019, my wife Ellen gave birth to twins, Sadie and Stokely. Uh, I usually tape during nap time, so I'm not going to yell it out because then, then they'll pop up and come running around the corner. But uh, at about 5.28, Stokely was born. At 5.33, Sadie was born. And by about 10.30, my wife had hemorrhaged seven units of blood. And they had to go in and do an emergency surgery and give her a Bakri balloon, you know, where they go in and... It's ironic. It's spelled very similar, minus one eight of my name. And uh, they put it in and it swells and it just kind of prevents all the, the bleeding. I don't know why I'm explaining it to you two. I'm explaining it to everyone else listening. Uh, it was a traumatic experience. We went to a, uh, my, my, my wife's uh, OBGYNs were three black women. We chose them uh, purposefully. And although we had an amazing pregnancy, we had a very tragic birth. The first 36 hours of uh, my wife's, uh, of the twins' life, my wife was in ICU. Which brings me to my number one political issue, which is, uh, and you spoke about it early, but it's, you know, everyone asks me, what's your, what's your biggest issue? And I'm like, it's black maternal health, African-American female mortality. So my question to one of you or both of you is, is why, you know, I, I want to know the answer. Why? Why do black women die at rates two to six times higher than white women? And as you hear my, my Yorkie, but also what role do our HBCU medical schools play in tackling disparities in black maternal health? Yeah, black maternal health is a, is a very significant issue. And some of the reasons are some of the broader reasons in our society, the stereotyping uh, of the black female physicians have been demonstrated to be less likely to uh, listen to them about pain, less likely to appreciate when they are having hemorrhage, as an example and also less likely uh, to really pay attention in terms of follow-up with them. Um, but that goes back to a broader construct in our healthcare system. There was an article in the American Medical Association published a few years ago that looked at un- unconscious bias mm-hmm. in medicine. And uh, the day before the first year medical students at Hopkins started, they gave them a test. And one of the questions was looking at a white toll booth operator, female, and a black male lawyer, and asking which one would be better equipped to fill out an informed consent. And unfortunately, for people who you may think are the most altruistic in a country, the day before medical school, we all think we're going to save the world. Uh, they felt the white female toll booth operator was more equipped uh, to fill out an informed consent than the black lawyer. And so you apply that all the way 
down to people making decisions. And there are several examples of that in our, in our healthcare system. And what must happen is that, one, we must raise the issue from a policy issue as well. I think people need to publish their data on outcomes around uh, Black women who are pregnant and uh, demonstrate uh, for insurers and for the federal government that they do have uh, equal outcomes uh, for Black women and Black infants as they do for white women and white infants. And that data will help set us free. But right now, we don't have a standard policy uh, or legislation in our country that addresses that issue. And I think the first thing is we have to give illumination to the issue and then get into making sure we have more Black competent uh, physicians uh, who recognize the cultural competency and would not treat Black women any differently. Dr. Carla? You know, I, I was reading a, a, a novel some years ago written during the Harlem Renaissance of the 1920s. And in it, the main character had to choose between two doctors, a white doctor and a black doctor. The main character was African-American. And the white doctor came out and asked the, the main character to come in and see him next. And the main character said, no, I'll wait for the black doctor. This is almost 100 years ago. And even then, we were dealing with issues of implicit bias in healthcare. Uh, the main character, of course, chose a black doctor because of trust. Mm -hmm. I also had a patient who asked me one day, Dr. Carlisle, do you know why I chose you to be my doctor? And I said, well, no, you know, I'm a researcher. I really don't have time to see you in clinic or the emergency room. And, and this is a full professor, department chair at the school I was at. And he said, well, when push comes to shove, if I end up in the ICU unconscious on a ventilator and somebody's got to make some big decisions about my life, I want you to make them because you're the only person here who looks like me. We're both African-American. That was his point. A very empowered individual for whom trust is still an issue in the healthcare system. So that's what we're talking about is making sure that we have an investment in a system that provides equity, that provides diversity, that puts doctors from the communities that need them most into the front lines. And this is what the gift from Michael Bloomberg has allowed us to do um, even more. So my last question to you guys, so you can get back to doing surgeries and running schools and doing research and clinical trials for vaccines and all this other stuff. Black male health. Um, I was in, at first going to do an entire show on this and vaccines were really, really important to talk to, especially um, ensuring that, that black people were a part of the process and that we were battling the mistrust in that process. But Dr. Carlisle, I'll start with you and then I have a, a, a final question for, uh, uh, for Dr. Frederick. Have you seen creative models that work to get black men more engaged in seeing a doctor regularly? and engaged in taking better care of ourselves. What's that conversation look like and, and what creatively are we doing to ensure that we are, we are taking the individual responsibility necessary to, to keep ourselves healthy? Well, yes, I have. And um, the point is getting medicine out of ivory towers, getting medicine out of um, ivy, ivy colored, uh, covered halls and getting medicine into the community uh, just an example is um, one that was led by one of our medical students, focusing on barbershops, going to barbershops where black men uh, can be found and basically saying things like, you need to get your colonoscopy. And I'm here to tell you uh, this. You need to get your prostate examination. And I can assure you that it's the right thing to do. We need to have the healthcare system go out into the community because that's where the rubber meets the road. 
and that's where it's needed. So, uh, Dr. Frederick, I know that you all um, just lost a hero in your community uh, with the death of our brother Chad with Bozeman recently, who lost his battle to colon cancer. One of the most admirable battles I've ever seen fought. He had three or four, I think one just dropped out, of the top 10 highest grossing films in the entire <laughs> world uh, while battling uh, colon cancer. But talk to us about black men and colon cancer, specifically what the risk factors and behaviors are for colon cancer, and when should we get screened for? That, that question, that last, the last question is actually my question. I, I go get a physical every year around my birthday. I just turned 35. I, I, I'm turning 36 uh, in a couple of weeks. And I just got my 35th anniversary of my physical, I guess. Uh, and I, uh, I didn't get a, a colonoscopy. But I heard, and this is how rumors, this was in the barbershop, right? Uh, they said that, as we were talking about it after Chadwick, they said that they heard that white boys were supposed to get their colonoscopy at 40 to 45, and we should start getting ours at 35. So just tell me when is that supposed to happen and add some truth to these rumors so I can go sound smart in the barbershop. Sure. The, the, the standard uh, screening protocol calls for everybody to be screened at age 45, but that can be adjusted based on your risk factors. Being African-American is a risk factor. Um, if you have genetic testing that suggests that you have a genetic syndrome uh, that puts you at risk, suggests that you should be screened earlier as well by colonoscopy. And as in Chadwick Boseman's case, um, there may be genetic issues that just simply first, for the first time manifested in himself. Uh, many of us can tell the story of that aunt or uncle who died from uh, something, you know, kind of unknown. And if you ask the right questions, you realize that that person wasn't the only person who may have died before age 50. And all of those things can lead to you being screened earlier, but the national guidelines you know, at 45. You're doing the right thing, getting a physical exam because the risk factors include obesity, uh, smoking, uh, eating diets large, with large amounts of red meat versus uh, diets with large amounts of vegetables. All of those are known risk factors uh, for contracting colon cancer, for having colon cancer at an earlier age. And therefore, uh, that may also be a reason uh, for you, you having to be screened earlier. And Chadwick Boseman is one, but the other thing, I think Ibrahim Kendi has been pretty open about his um, diagnosis as well. Ibrahim Kendi, who, who wrote the book on, you know, being an anti-racist, he was diagnosed at age 36 with stage four colon cancer two years ago. He's now age 38. So this is not an isolated issue and something that we have to bring more attention to. Gentlemen, both thank you so much for your time today. I know I, I ran over with my allotted time with you guys, but it's it's important for people to get this information. And and you two are heroes of mine for everything that you have done, everything you are doing, and everything that you will do. You're some of the best historically black college, stretch that, some of the best colleges and universities in the entire world. And just keep on keeping on whatever I can do to help, including being a spokesperson to ensure that more, listen here, more black folk need to get involved in these clinical trials. Um, I just want to say thank you for joining the Bakari Sellers podcast. Thanks for having us. And thank you, Bakari.